Um, today we're in the final message of our series called People of the Kingdom, and uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll do that for me. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm just going to mention uh, that for those of you uh, who are just joining us, maybe you're just with us, I want to I welcome you and also let you know that for the past couple of months, we've been looking at the character or the characteristics of what we're calling People of the Kingdom, and that phrase, people of the kingdom, is really rooted in the idea that people who say they follow Jesus, like if you, if you say, I'm a Jesus follower, then that means you are part of a unique, distinct kingdom. You're part of the kingdom that Jesus was constantly saying was available to us. Um, Jesus, throughout his teaching ministry, would say the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is available, it's yours, it's all around you, and when we say we follow Jesus, we become citizens of that distinct kingdom, and as citizens of that kingdom, there are characteristics that are true about us that are different than the characteristics of people that are a part of other or earthly cultural kingdoms, and so each week through this series, we've been talking about things like love and peace and power and justice and freedom and truth and joy. We've been talking about all of these things and we've been distinguishing the biblical understanding of these things and where we find them from the cultural understanding of these things and where we find them. And if you're anything like me, as we've moved through this series, we've had several of us have taught through this, um, these have been stimulating and, and challenging. And I feel like my character in Christ, very specifically, like I can tell you, I told Lane after he did the one on truth, I was sitting over here and I felt like God was just working on my character. Like I could feel him like working on my soul. I told Lane afterwards, I said, I'm tired because I just felt myself being challenged. And so this has been challenging. It's been a challenging series. But that being said, I don't think any one of these topics is as challenging as the one we're going to look at today, because today we're going to talk about being people of unity. What does it mean to be people of unity? And why is this one tougher than the rest? Well, in short, let me answer this. Um, with, with each one of these messages in this series, we've been distinguishing between the Christ-centered understanding and the cultural understanding. And we would say this, here's the cultural understanding of something like love or joy, and here's the cultural pathway that we've chosen to achieve those things. And on the other hand, there's the biblical or Christ-centered way of pursuing love or joy or peace or one of these things. And here's the pathway, here's what it is. And we've been contrasting these things, and we've been saying that there's this very sincere desire inside every one of us to pursue this. That's why culture has a pathway for it. We just often get misguided in what we're looking for, and so that's why we need to be doing this. That's basically what we've been doing. We've been talking about how we wrongly define it, but our pursuit is there. Our pursuit, our desire is there. But this one, unity, this is unique. And here's why. Because unlike all the other topics in this series, unity is not something that our culture is looking for right now. We are living in an age of division. There is a spirit of separation in our culture today. It has become commonplace to get entrenched in our ideals and turn those who disagree with us into villains or even worse. And we don't simply accept the fractured nature of this in our society. We seem to egg it on these days. We're egging on division. And disunity exists even among Christians. And yet the biblical call 
for people of the kingdom to be people of unity is unmistakable. So I want to dive into Ephesians 4, and I want to begin to talk about what it looks like for us to be people of unity. And let me just apologize in advance as we dive into this, that um, the reality is I cannot cover everything on this topic or subject in 30 minutes or less and like put a bow on it and send you out the door. But my hope is this, my prayer is this. My prayer is that I can sow, that we can sow some seeds of biblical unity into our congregation, into this church, so that they might sprout into something that's flourishing within our body. And I'm just going to say this, as I preach this today, I'm not preaching to, to, to people outside of this room other than those that are online. I'm not preaching to other churches. I'm not preaching to culture. I'm going to talk today about what I want us to be, what we should be as a body of believers before church. What should we be like? That's what this is about. So I want to begin reading in verse one, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He says this in chapter four, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul then breaks into a hymn. We're going to skip down to verse 11 and pick up there. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children." tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So this challenge from Paul to the church at Ephesus I believe is as relevant to us today as it was to them. And I want to walk through this together as if Paul were writing this to us. Right now, 2022, Paul's writing it to us. And I want you to notice something. In the first verse we read, verse 1, we read something that's related to something that we read the very last part of this in verse 17. Verse 1, he says, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. That's the first part. And at the very end it says, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul's giving us two different choices. He's saying there's two ways to walk. You can walk worthy of your calling or you can walk in futility. Um, the last time I chose futility, it didn't work out really well for me, right? And uh, I think if we have a choice, what are we going to choose? We're going to choose the first one, right? There's a really important distinction that Paul is drawing here. There's two ways for us to walk, but he uses this really beautiful metaphor of walking. What is he talking about? Well, the word walk in the Greek language is the word peripateo. It's kind of a fun word to say, and that's our Greek lesson for the day. So just say peripateo with me. 
peripateo, right? Beautiful sounding word. Reminds me of onomatopoeia, another really fun word to say. Um, but this word actually is sort of like onomatopoeia. You know, onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it's describing. Peripateo, you can hear the peripateo of little feet pitter-pattering above you, right? Peripateo kind of sounds like walking. So when Jesus came on the sea to the disciples, he peripateoed on the water, or when he found the man by the pool on the mat and he raised him up, he peripateoed because he had been healed. He physically walked. Peripateo means to physically walk. But it's also a really interesting word. The word peripateo is actually a conjunction of two different words. The Greek word peri, which means, which means everywhere. It means all places, all around. And the word pateo, which means to tread. So literally, its most literal expression is everywhere you tread. It's treading everywhere. And so this word has a double meaning. It means physically to walk. So the Greeks would say, oh, peripateo to, to your house today. But it also means peripateo, everywhere you go. Or another way of saying that is everywhere you live. Paul is saying, the way he's using it here, he's saying this is about how you live your life. Everywhere you go. We're talking about all the places you inhabit. So where your feet carry you. Where you live out your days, that is peripateo. And so Paul is telling these people, and he's telling us, he's saying, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the restaurants that you like to go to. And I want you to think about the parks that you walk in, the people you see there. I want you to think about the bus or the max that you ride or the friends that you hang out with in your home. I want you to think about your work environment. I want you to think about the hall that you walk down going to class or the classroom that you sit in to learn or the classroom you stand in to teach or the job site that you show up to every single day. I want you to think about the grocery store where you get your groceries and the cashier that you meet every single week. I want you to think about all of the places you parapateo. Think about all the places you peripateo. And according to Paul, there are two ways to peripateo in those places. You can walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling in Christ, or you can walk in the futility of your mind. Peripateo in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is a way to walk worthy. Paul says, choose worthy. Now, when he says this, I also think we need to stop and clarify what he's talking about because this is what I do and this is my own dysfunction, but I'll look at this and what I hear him saying is like when he says you need to walk in a manner worthy, I think I'm not doing enough, am I? Right? He's saying, no, you, you, you need to work a little bit harder. You need to put a little more effort in. You need to clean yourself up a little bit. But here's what we already know. Paul in no way is talking about you and I working hard enough or doing enough to be considered worthy. That would be a contradiction of the gospel. It'd be a contradiction of everything else that Paul said, right? So what he's actually saying is he's saying, walk in a manner that is consistent with what has already been proclaimed over you. Walk in a manner that is consistent or congruent with what is already true about you. If it was the other way around, if he was telling us to walk in a, in a way that would make us worthy, like to try to be worthy or try to attain worthiness, well, that doesn't make you the kind of person that Paul is wanting us to be or that Jesus wants us to be. 
If your effort is what makes you worthy, that actually doesn't make you a secure, confident, mature person, does it? If it's your effort, then you're going to be insecure, right? Then you're going to feel anxious. You're going to always be striving. You're going to be competitive. You're going to be putting others down. You'll never feel like you measure up. And so this idea that Paul is talking about when he says be worthy, he's saying live in a way that is fitting with or connected to who Jesus has already said you are. It means there's this synchronization of our life and how we peripateo and the identity that has been spoken over us. Are you with me so far? And so, so this is really important that he's saying this because Paul is about to call us towards something that's going to require us to be confident in who we are. It's going to require us to be secure. It's going to require a maturity in us. So before he ever gets to the challenge, he says, listen, in order for you to do what I'm about to ask you to do, you're going to have to lean into your identity in Christ and remember who you are because this is going to be some work. It's gonna, you're going to have to be secure. You're going to have to be confident. And so what does he say? Let's go back. Verse, verse 1 again, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. So what's our calling? Our calling is unity. Unity. And unity, from what Paul says, is going to require something out of us, right? It's not just a word he throws out flippantly. The pathway to, un to unity, he says, is humility, right? You're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to be gentle, which is an understanding of power under control. That's what gentleness is. You're going to have to be patient. Bear with one another in love. All of that really creates this perception of this understanding that it's going to require work, right? It's going to require effort. Unity requires effort. Why? And, and this is absolutely essential that we understand this. For the past probably seven weeks as I've been thinking about this message, this phrase has been rolling around in my, in my mind. Why does it take effort? Because unity assumes diversity, Unity assumes diversity, and diversity means we're different. So the idea of being united assumes, if we're united, it assumes that we have overcome, or we have worked out, or we have understood and have learned to operate within our differences. That's what unity assumes. It assumes diversity. And we have to notice that Paul says, you eagerly maintain this. I love some translations that actually say that you must contend for the unity of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means unity takes effort. It doesn't just happen. It takes energy. It takes in intentionality. It takes a decision to work towards it. Um, this being Father's Day and, and Juneteenth, I think this is uh, an appropriate time for me to tell this story. Um, when I think about my dad, and those of us, we, if you grew up with your dad in the picture, um, 
you probably have memories of certain things that, that maybe happened consistently. You get impressions of who your dad is or was because of things you saw over and over again. When I think about my dad, and I think about when he was angry, because um, all dads get angry, right? Uh, at least this one does. I don't know. Maybe they all don't, but this one did. Um, but, but my dad would get angry. And when I think about what made my dad angry, there are only two reasons that I can, and I mean this, there are only two reasons that I can ever remember seeing my dad really angry, like seeing the fire in his eyes. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the fire in dad's eyes. Um, one was, if you ever disrespected my mom. That was number one. Don't you dare disrespect his wife. I'll just tell you this. The other one was racism. Um, you know, some people say they didn't grow up in a, in a, in a racist home. I didn't just grow up in a non-racist home. I believe I grew up in an anti-racist home. See, my, my father, and I would hear these stories. You know how dads tell stories and you just like, you've heard them all like 15, 20 times. You're like, dad, I know, I know the story. Like you start finishing his sentences. My dad used to sit at the dinner table and I remember from the time I was young until I moved out of their house, my dad would tell me about running track in college in the 60s during the civil rights movement in this country, running on a team full of people with the half black guys and half white guys. And he would tell me the stories of walking down the street and the, the athletes on his team being profiled, thrown up against a wall and frisked by police while the white athletes stood by and watched in shock. He told me stories about walking into restaurants and certain athletes not being served and the entire team out of solidarity standing up and walking out together. My dad told those stories and those stories left impressions on his heart. So when there was ever a hint of anything racist in our home, my dad, I saw the fire in his eyes. Any nuance, any hint, my dad would, would literally become incensed with that and would remind us that we would never be a part of a racist household. Um, it wasn't just insinuated that we wouldn't be racist. My father demanded it. He taught it. He called it out when he saw it at a time when it wasn't common and it wasn't popular. And I'm just going to say this. I'm grateful for the example that my father set and the way he instructed me to look at everybody and their diversity and lean in because I watched him do it. And it takes work. And that's what Paul says. He says, unity is a gift that's given to you by the Spirit. And I sort of have this picture. I have a picture of all of us coming in. Imagine this was just some sort of revival meeting and none of us really knew anything about Jesus until today. And we all came in and I stood up here and I told everybody about Jesus. And all of us in the room said, you know what? I want to believe in Jesus. I want to experience his redemption and renewal. And we're all excited and we're all celebrating. And we all have this amazing moment where the Spirit of God moves. And we look around and we say, isn't this great? But then we walk out the doors and we all go back to our homes and we go back to our individual stories, our individual ideologies. And what happens because we're human is slowly we begin to become disunited because of who we are, because we're human, because we're different, because our stories and our experiences are unique. There's a gift of unity that God gives us in the spirit, but unity must be contended for because it assumes diversity. I'll never forget when I made this, this realization regarding the early church, the, the first century church. Um, I was reading in Acts chapter 11 about the church in Antioch, and I ran across something that I had never noticed before. This is years ago, but I want to share this with you. Verse 25 of Acts 11 says this. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I remember reading that and I thought, why Antioch? Why did it take us to Acts chapter 11 to get the moniker Christian? What, what, what took place? And so I just started studying and a little deeper study revealed something about the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch was incredibly diverse. People from all sorts of different ethnicities and nationalities and languages had, had, had really come to this one city. In fact, it was said that Antioch was all the world in one place. That was the city of Antioch. And as often the case, those various groups, they came from all of these different backgrounds, they clumped together in their unique neighborhoods. In fact, um, Antioch was divided into neighborhoods and there were literally walls that divided the different ethnicities and languages in the city. And so everybody had their own little pocket, their own little neighborhood. And then there was a central marketplace where people would come to do business together, but then they would go back to their neighborhoods, back to their little ethnic enclave. That's the way life was living there. And in those neighborhoods, there were distinct priorities and there were distinct customs and there were unique ideologies. But when the gospel began spreading in that city, people from all of these different neighborhoods started believing the gospel, started following Jesus. And people from these different groups were, began gathering together. And their values and their priorities and their ideologies began to change. So the reason that they were called Christians was that now you had all of these different people from all of these different nationalities and ethnicities and neighborhoods. Now you have all of them that are bound together. They're no longer simply identified by, well, you live there and speak that language and you live over there and you speak that language. This was brand new. And so the result was that the larger community, they were scratching their head and it was like, what do we call these people? Because you don't fit the categories anymore. So they called them Christians for the first time. And from that point forward, from that point forward, the Christian church became a multicultural endeavor from its very beginning. And so let me be really clear on something. What I am talking about is something called Christian unity. And it isn't just about our ethnicity or our language or our cultural backgrounds. It's also about our ideas. It's about our ideologies. It's about our preferences. It's about our particularities. It's about all of these things. Embedded in the very name Christian is an assumption of a diversity and unity. And as challenging as it may be, you and I, what we are now primarily identified as is Christian we're identified by our faith. That's why Paul goes on to say this in verse 4 of Ephesians 4. He said, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice that he likes the word one, right? It's our one faith that unites us. One Lord, one spirit, baptism, one God who is over all and through all and in all. We are diverse, but we are united. Are you with me? Two or three of you. This is, okay, thanks, Steve. All right, a couple more, good. See, what, you know what happens when, when, when we become united? Our unity becomes a proclamation of the gospel. Do you know this? A couple things I want to say about this. First, um, there are so many times that I look out at a crowd like this, 
And I kind of chuckle because I realize there is no explanation outside of something supernatural that explains this crowd getting together. Do you realize that? Like when I look out and I know all your stories and I know all your backgrounds and your histories and just everything and all your preferences and like we are so incredibly different. And the only explanation for us being in a room together truly is Jesus, right? Like that's it. It's crazy to think about how he brings people together and that in itself is a proclamation of the gospel. I've had friends that come visit and they kind of scratch their head. They're not part of our faith understanding and they'll go, this is so crazy. Like you got young and old and black and white and you've got Asian. Just, they'll just, they'll, like all these different people, it's crazy how diverse you are. And I'm like, yeah, that's what Jesus does, right? He brings us together. That's what Jesus does. Our unity is our witness. It's our witness. But secondly, and this is so beautiful, notice where Paul goes in Ephesians 4, verse 15. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying we aren't just a crowd B4 is not, this is not a stadium event. This isn't like going to a Timbers game, right? He says we are a body with different parts. And those different parts, according to Paul, they need each other. We are a whole body without each other. We need each other to be a body. We're connected. Occasionally I'll get a question from somebody. They'll say, Hey, what does your church believe about, you know, and they'll kind of want me to fill in the, or they'll fill in the blank. And it's always such an odd question when people ask me this. So there's a real like cheesy pastor answer I always give first. Well, it's not my church, it's Jesus's church, you know. Usually that doesn't derail them. They're like, no, but what, you know, you know what I'm asking, right? But that question, when people ask that question, what does your church believe? That question treats the church like an organization when in reality the church is an organism, right? We're an organism. And I'm looking at that organism right now. We are people. This is what makes up the church. All sorts of different stories and experiences, backgrounds, histories, opinions. So when I get asked that question, I sometimes think, you know, I guess I could poll the 5,000 people that call B4 home. I could call them up and do a little interview, but um, what I'd find out is that we don't agree on everything, do we? <laughs> I'd find that out pretty quickly, right? But do you know what the Apostle Paul says we should agree on? And what we should be like? And what people should know us for? That we have one Savior. That we have one Savior. That we're humble. That we're gentle that we're patient, that we are unified even though we're different, that's what people should know. Are you with me? Amen? That's who we are. That is people of the kingdom. If we peripateo our calling, if we walk in humble confidence and lean into the worthiness that's already been proclaimed of over us, if, we, if we're confident because of what Jesus has said about who we are, there is something that will happen in you. There's something that's going to happen in me. There's something that people will see in us. We're a witness. And my, my prayer 
is that in a deserted wasteland of division that our culture is today, that in the middle of this desert that our society seems to be, there would be this little green sprouting organism called B4 Church, so full of life, so united amidst diversity, that the gospel would begin to grow and it would spread. And because of our love and because of our unity, we would begin to reshape the city around us. Are you with me on that? Would you stand with me? I always mean the benediction. I, I take it really seriously as I send you into the week. Um, sometimes I mean it more than others, and this is maybe one of them. So if you're willing to hold out your hands this morning to receive the benediction, I want to pray this one over you and over myself. May we be men and women who lean in to the security, the worthiness, and the confidence that we have in Christ. And may we not see diversity as a threat, but as our secret weapon, because we're united. And may people see the kingdom when they see us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love you guys so much.